Welcome to episode number four for Dark Gate Horror Podcast. In this episode, I will be talking about Jack the Ripper, what we know about him, the history of the cases, and how this legacy lives on in popular culture and film. Now, I've been interested in the story of Jack the Ripper for a very long time. This is the first serial killer that I studied. As a psychology student, I'm drawn to studying and learning about people who are different from cultural norms and expectations. The psyche of serial killers has always been of interest to me. As Stephen King once said in an interview, if he did not write, he would be in prison for committing murder. Perhaps I am the same way. Studying, reading, and learning about killers, forensics, etc. keeps me from causing harm. Or, as my mom puts it, I'm just weird. Anyway, this story piqued my interest and still does today. First, I'm going to share pieces of an article I really like about the background and factual information that we have ascertained. Then I'll review the recent film From Hell, starring Johnny Depp and Heather Graham, and share an article discussing the movie's factual basis. I apologize up front, I am losing my voice. I've had some sort of sinus thing going on the last week. The articles are from casebook.org and crimelibrary.com. I'll put links in the show notes. Um, and I am sort of paraphrasing and using a lot of direct quotes from there. So um, if you want to go to those sites and take a look, they are both really good very thorough and well-researched websites on Jack the Ripper, as well as a variety of other things. So, let's get started. Part 1, Background and Factual Information. Let's talk about the history of Jack the Ripper. By today's standards of violent crime, Jack the Ripper would not make headlines, because he only murdered five prostitutes in an overwhelming slum swarming with criminals. The murders would not draw attention like Ted Bundy slaying college students or John Wayne Gacy who tortured and murdered young boys. We have become a society in which horrible crimes can be and are committed upon anyone in society, regardless of socioeconomic status or occupation. So the question is, why then, over a hundred years later, are we still enthralled with the story and legend of Jack the Ripper? More books have been written on Jack the Ripper than of all the American presidents combined. There are songs, books, operas, musicals, and films, among other forms of media written on this criminal. Recently, Jack the Ripper was voted the worst Briton of the millennium. I think it is because Jack the Ripper represents the sense of mystery and the unknown. It is the ultimate picture of the perfect crime, since we cannot determine the identity of Jack the Ripper. Also, the story has a kind of supernatural quality to it, since Jack appears from out of a fog, kills violently, and then disappears without a trace forever. Jack the Ripper is the nickname given to a serial killer who killed a number of prostitutes in the east end of London in 1888. The name originates from a letter written by someone who claimed to be the killer published at the time of the murders. The killings took place within a small geographical area of about a mile, including the districts of Whitechapel, Spitalfields, Aldgate, and London City proper. He was also called the Whitechapel Murderer and the Leather Apron. Jack the Ripper was not the first serial killer, but he was the first to work in a large metropolitan area when the general populace had become literate and the press was vocal for social change. It was a time of political turmoil, and the murders were chronicled in the newspapers as were the results of the investigation. Feelings of the residents of the East End and editorials that attacked the various establishments of London appeared daily for people in both the city of London and the whole world to read. So let's talk about the victims. There's a discrepancy in the number of victims that are associated with Jack the Ripper, and the number ranges from 1 to 9, with general acceptance that there are 5 victims. The 5 that are generally accepted are Mary Ann Polly Nichols, who died Friday, August 31st, 1888, 
Annie Chapman, who died Saturday, September 8, 1988, Elizabeth Stride, who died Sunday, September 30, 1888, Catherine Eddowes, also murdered the same date, September 30, 1988, I'm sorry, 1888, and Mary Jane, who was born Marie Jeanette Kelly, died Friday, November 9, 1888. All but Kelly were killed outdoors, and there is no evidence to suggest that any of them knew each other. They varied in both age and appearance. Mary Jane Kelly was the youngest by far. The only similarity being that they were all prostitutes and were thought to be drunk, um, or were drunk at the time that they were killed. So, let's talk about the method of killing. Due to the limited nature of forensic science in the 1880s, which was even before fingerprinting, the method of killing was not understood until recently. In order to keep this podcast clean, I will describe the grisly I will not describe the grisly details of the murders. For information, you can go to the Best Jack the Ripper website out there, which as I mentioned before was casebook.org. So, what clues did Jack leave us? One are letters. Hundreds of letters were delivered to the police during this time, and only 3 are thought to have any merit at all. The letter dated September 25th was the first to be signed Jack the Ripper. The second was a postcard that was postmarked October 1st. Because it referred to a double event, the police thought it might be from the killer since it is posted the day after the Ripper killed two women. The postcard that also referred to the letter, and must have come from the same source as the letter, had not been released to the public yet. If the postcard had been sent on September 30th, the day of the double event, instead of October 1st, the likelihood that it was written by the murderer would be significantly greater. There is recent evidence that the postcard was written by a journalist from the Central News Agency by the name of Tom Bulling. One other letter may have been written by the killer. In mid-October, a small parcel was sent to George Lusk, who was head of a vigilance committee in Whitechapel. Inside was half a human kidney and a letter from someone claiming to be the killer, and that it was part of the kidney he removed from the victim, Eddowes. It is impossible to know for sure if the Ripper really did send it, but Eddowes did suffer from Bright's disease, and the male kidney does match what Bright's disease um, does to a kidney and what it would look like. Okay, let's look at some evidence. Given the organization of the police at the time, two different police groups worked on the investigation. The Metropolitan Police, known as Scotland Yard, was responsible for crimes committed in all the boroughs of London except the City of London proper. The City of London had their own police force. Since Eddowes was killed in London proper, the London police got involved. Other than autopsies and taking statements from everybody who might know something, there was little else that the Metropolitan Police Force could do. Little evidence or police reports exist today. In the 1880s, police would close a cased file, and when they ran out of storage space, they would dispose of closed files. Also, in the Second World War, much of London was bombed and many police files were destroyed. Since then, files have been lost and stolen, and only a handful of records remain and are housed in the National Archives in England. So, this leads us to wonder, well, who could he actually be? Were there any suspects? I mean, what did the police think at the time? Well, in 1894, Sir Melville McNaughton, the police constable at the time, wrote a confidential report naming the top suspects. The names of the suspects did not become public record until 1959. 1. M.J. Druitt, a barrister-turned-teacher who committed suicide in December 1888. Unfortunately for McNaughton, who wrote his memoranda from memory, the details he describes to Druitt are wrong. According to the chief 
chief constable, Druitt was a doctor, 41 years of age, and committed suicide immediately after the Kelly murder. In actuality, Druitt was 31, not a doctor, and killed himself nearly a month after the last official murder. While it's still possible that he was the Ripper, correct information gathered about Druitt so far makes him seem an unlikely candidate. Number 2. Aaron Kosminski He was a real person who was placed in an insane asylum. His records show him to be a docile and harmless man who heard voices in his head and would only eat food from the gutter. The dates of his incarceration are wrong, and he did not die soon um, after his committal, but lived on until 1919. Number three, Michael Ostrog, who has been investigated, and there is nothing to indicate that he was anything more than a bizarre con man. Number four, Dr. Francis Tumbley, Tumblety. Among the letters discovered of crime journalist G.R. Sims was one from John Littlechild, who had been in charge of the secret department in Scotland Yard at the time of the murders. Dated 1913, Littlechild writes to Sims, I never heard of a Dr. D., which may assume this is reference to Druitt, as McNaughton thought Druitt was a doctor and Sims was confident of the chief constable, in connection with the Whitechapel murders, but amongst the suspects, and to my mind a very likely one, was a Dr. T., he was an American quack named Tumblety. There is no doubt that Tumblety was a legitimate sub suspect who fled to America and it is unlikely that Scotland Yard viewed him as a serious suspect. So let's look at research that has been done. From the time of the murders to the present day, a lot has been written about the murders, including some tabloid-type books, which only helped to develop myths about the case. Some memoirs of officials who worked at the time were written, but that is all that we have from that time. The first full-length book in English about the murders was The Mystery of Jack the Ripper by Leonard Matters and was published in 1929. Interest in the murders were piked again, and for example, Alfred Hitchcock's The Lodger was released. Cult-like interest began in the 1950s. There was a TV show by Dan Farson based on a version of the McNaughton Memoranda. In the 1960s, we started to see serious works such as Tom Cullen's Autumn of Terror and Robin Ottle's Jack the Ripper in Fact and Fiction. In the 1970s, a new theory was published in which the grandson of Queen Victoria, Prince Albert Victor, Duke of Clarence and Avondale, was accused of being Jack the Ripper. Other conspiracy theories of the time included plots involving the Freemasons, court physicians, and sinister figures from occult organizations. However, Donald Rumbelow's the Complete Jack the Ripper was published, which was an excellent work. The 1980s saw a variety of books published to celebrate the centennial of the murders. The FBI's Behavioral Science Unit did a criminal profile of the Ripper, and aspects of the murder were discussed in various professional journals. During the 1990s, two new books have appeared that are must for people who are interested in the Ripper murders. The first is Jack the Ripper A to Z by pa Paul Begg, Martin Fido, and Keith Skinner. And the second is Sugden's The Complete History of Jack the Ripper. And here we are in the 2000s. Mystery novelist Patricia Cornwell recently released a nonfiction book called Portrait of a Killer, Jack the Ripper, Case Closed, in which she bragged to have identified the real Jack the Ripper, all based on circumsta circumstantial evidence without the use of the volumes of data that serious researchers have completed. A search on Amazon.com right now for Jack the Ripper brings up 178 book matches. Amazing. So, the legacy of Jack the Ripper. It is possible that Jack the Ripper's identity may be discovered at some point and may be one of the suspects I have mentioned or another which was dismissed by the police at the time. Alternatively, it may be someone completely different. So, here it comes to part two. 
It's a movie review of the film From Hell. If you've seen the 20th Century Fox production From Hell starring Johnny Depp and Heather Graham, you may be wondering, was the film historically accurate? The answer is more complex than a simple yes or no. In many ways, it was very true to life, particularly in its reaction of Whitechapel and its portrayal of the everyday lives of its inhabitants. In others, however, the storyline swerved dramatically from the facts. These inaccuracies are important to note, particularly for those who have no previous knowledge of the Ripper case and would like to know the real story behind the murders. We present the following as a guide for those who have already seen the film. For those who have not yet seen it and may intend to do so, please be aware that there may be spoilers in this article. Here's a brief in- introduction. From Hell is based on a graphic novel of the same title by Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell. That, in turn, is based largely on the royal conspiracy theory detailed in Stephen Knight's Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution. It's a good story, but unfortunately is not historically accurate. Knight's book is riddled with errors and fabrications, and so, by default, is from hell. So, how accurate was the casting? Many people were surprised to learn that the roles of Frederick Aberlein and Mary Kelly were filled by American actors Johnny Depp and Heather Graham. While people's opinions may vary on how well they executed their roles, there's several slight inconsistencies between the actors and the real-life people they are portraying. First, let's start with the role of Inspector Aberlein. Although no photograph has yet been discovered of the real-life inspector, contemporaries described him as somewhat portly with the general appearance appearance of a banker. He was 45 years old in 1888. While Depp himself in real life is just shy of 40, he certainly has a much more youthful appearance than Aberlein probably did at the time of the Ripper murders. His more boyish looks also make him appear to be somewhat subordinate to Godley, played by Robbie Coltrane, who was 51 years old at the time of filming. In reality, Sergeant Godley was 32 at the time of the murders, 13 years younger than Inspector Aberlein, and very much his subordinate. Heather Graham's casting as Mary Kelly is more realistic in terms of age. Mary Kelly was indeed markedly younger than the other victims of the Ripper, who ranged between 39 and 46. Mary herself was in her 20s in 1888, and even at the time was said to have been more attractive than the average Whitechapel prostitute. Contemporary reports described her as much more stout than Graham, however. Her hair color is also a bit of a mystery to Ripper scholars, although one of her nicknames was Fair Ginger, supposedly because of the color of her hair. Descriptions vary as to her actual hair color. Some describe her as blonde, others brunette, and a few as a redhead. In general, the casting of the other Ripper victims was less inaccurate. They were cast as middle-aged women, perhaps only slightly younger than in real life, and certainly more attractive. Annie Chapman and Martha Tabram, for instance, were decidedly overweight, while Polly Nichols had several teeth missing and her hair had begun to turn gray. The remaining cast was fairly accurate, Ian Holm in particularly standing, uh, particular standing as an excellent Sir William Gull, recently partially paralyzed on one side due to a stroke incurred the previous year. So let's talk about sets and scenery. The Hughes brothers spent a great deal of time and effort towards recreating Whitechapel and the various murder scenes, and the work certainly paid off, as From Hell can certainly claim to have the most authentic sets ever designed for a Ripper movie. From the creation of Christ Church to the Ten Bells to the depiction of everyday life in Whitechapel, Most everything was spot on. One scene in particular was hauntingly accurate, where Mary and several fellow white chaplains are asleep, held up by a single rope threaded beneath their arms. Doss houses in Whitechapel were often so overcrowded that there really was no room for beds, 
The poor would pay a slight fee for the privilege of sleeping, leaning over a common rope. The murder scenes were generally quite accurate, apart from Mary Kelly's room, which was a bit larger and had the bed facing the wrong wall. Apart from such trifles, however, the scenery as a whole was very real to life. So, what about Aberlane? Was he an opium addict and psychic? There is no evidence whatsoever pointing to Aberlane having ever used opium or any other drug, much less being addicted to chasing the dragon, as the film portrays. This is simply a ploy used to help explain his psychic visions, which again have no basis in historical fact. It appears that though the character of Aberlane from In Hell is a mix between the real Aberlane and a self-proclaimed psychic named James, or Robert James Lees, Lees did in fact exist and made his services available to Scotland Yard during the investigation, though they never took him up on his offer. Later stories describe Lees as having jumped of the murder as an upper-class doctor whom he ran into an omnibus while in London. According to the story, Lees chased the doctor down to a fashionable West End residence where the doctor's wife admitted he had been out all hours of the night, often without explanation, and sometimes returning with blood on his clothes. This story forms the basis of the general royal conspiracy theory, but research has shown this to be a complete fiction, apparently penned by a so-called Whitechapel Club in Chicago in the 1890s. So were the victims friends? Although From Hell shows all the, the Ripper victims as being close-knit friends, or at least well-known acquaintances, there is no evidence to support this. Such insinuations have been made in the past by various theorists, based, based largely on the fact that the four of the victims lived within a short distance of each other at one time in the Flower and Dean sections of Spitalfields. At first, this may seem to indicate a link between the victims until one realizes that nearly one-third of the entire population of that district was housed in that one overcrowded street made up largely of nothing but lodging houses. Other theorists claim that Catherine Eddowes must have known Mary Kelly since she had at one time used the alias as Kate Kelly and Mary Kelly. Again, this may seem important, but prostitutes at the time often held a half dozen or more aliases, which were used at various times during encounters with unsavory characters or policemen. The name Mary Kelly was just one of several names used by Catherine Eddowes, and probably just a coincidence. There is no supporting evidence to link any one Ripper victim to another. So there are several other characters that were talked about in the film, and let's talk about those individually. There's the Nichols Gang. Mary is accosted twice by the Nichols Gang, a band of ruffians who extorted money from local prostitutes in return for claims of protection. This gang did indeed exist, although it was often referred to as the Old Nickel Gang. When the murders first began, gangs such as this and another called the High Rips were suspected of having been involved. Some have suggested that the name High Rips may have led to the later creation of the gnome de plume, Jack the Ripper. Let's talk about Annie Crook. Although it appears as though Annie Crook did in fact exist, there is no evidence that she ever knew any of the Ripper victims, nor had any affair with Prince Albert Victor and had his child. There is no evidence of any lobotomy. All of this first appeared in Stephen Knight's Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution, and no other researcher has ever been able to collaborate his findings. John Netley. Again, a cabman named John Netley did exist, although he was never found to be associated with Sir William Gull or any other members of the royal family. This tale again originated with Stephen Knight's royal conspiracy theory. Prince Albert Victor. He was indeed the heir presumptive to the throne of England in 1888, although he was not named the Duke of Clarence, as indicated on the painting Aberlein shows to Mary Kelly, until two years later. There's no basis for his ever being involved with East End prostitutes, much less serving a child with one of them. 
In all likelihood, he was an avowed homosexual and never seemed to show much interest for women. It is not known for sure if he had syphilis, although rumors have persisted. He died in 1892 from a bout of influenza, according to royal records. And the murders, did they really happen this way? Although the murder sites were recreated with exquisite detail, their depiction is almost certainly inaccurate. First, witnesses never reported seeing the Ripper in a top, cat, or a top hat and cape. Most witnesses described him as wearing general common clothing, indi- indicative of the lower middle class. Although there was a sighting of a man with a Gladstone bag, this man was later proved not to be involved in the murders. Most true sightings of the killer show nothing in his hands, although he did indicate a parcel of paper in one hand that may have been a well-concealed knife. The method of killing was portrayed in From Hell is something different from the known facts of the case. There is no evidence that there was ever more than one person involved in the murders, with the possible exception of the Stride murder, and certainly no evidence that any of the bodies were killed anywhere other than where they were found. The later myth arises from a newspaper report that mentioned only a slight amount of blood found near the body of Polly Nichols. Some initially took this to mean that her body had been killed elsewhere and placed at Bucks Row, but further investigation revealed that her ample clothing had soaked up most of the missing blood. There is also little chance that the killer had used a carriage as they have been, there would have been quite a loud noise on the cobblestone streets and witnesses would have heard it. In real life, the murderer almost certainly did not know the identity of his victim, and he was seen on several occasions conversing with his victim so to appear as that he had spent some time at least pretending if he, that he were a normal client before he killed the girl. In the film, um, Martha Tabern was described as having her throat cut, and um, in reality, it wasn't her throat, but she had been stabbed to death. Polly Nichols was shown to have had one of her organs removed, although in reality no organs were missing. No grape stalks were found at any of the crime scenes except, except for that of Elizabeth Stride in Dutzfield's yard. The stock was discovered days after the original investigation by a private investigator near the yard, and there was no evidence to link it to a crime scene. It is suggested that the killer would need more than one type of knife to carry out the murders, but this is not historically accurate. Let's talk about Elizabeth Stride. The film depicts her as a lesbian, although there's no evidence whatsoever to support this. Some have suggested that Mary Kelly might, may have been a bisexual, but evidence for this is flimsy at best. Elizabeth Stride's murder is portrayed with many of the original facts intact. A witness, a Jew named Israel Schwartz, testified to having seen two men assaulting Stride on the night of her murder. One of them looked at him and shouted, Lipsky, which is an anti-Semitic uh, slur, at which point Schwartz ran away. Most believe that these two men were either customers or exhorting money from Liz, and that the Ripper killed her after this incident. Others believe that these men killed her and that it was she was not a real Ripper victim. In reality, Liz's throat was cut, but there were no abdominal mutilations. Most believe that the man who discovered Liz's body, Louis Diemschutz, interrupted the murder just before he was about to begin and pulled his horse and cart into the yard. The film depicts this as well as the explanation for the absence of mutilation and for the Ripper's immediate move to murder Catherine Eddowes. Sergeant Godley comments that the throats caught the same way, but in reality, Liz's wounds were less deep in the neck than other Ripper victims. This may have been because a different knife was used and may indicate that she was not a true Ripper victim. Mary Kelly Now, Mary and Inspector Aberline had never met before her murder, 
The idea of another girl being murdered in Mary's bed and being mistaken for her has been raised by some authors as the victim of Miller's court was mutilated almost beyond recognition. Nevertheless, Joseph Barnett, Mary Kelly's live-in boyfriend, um, did identify the body by the eyes and hair. This theory is based largely on the possible sighting of Mary Kelly on the morning of November 9th, hours after she was supposedly killed. The witness may very well have been mistaken, or indeed Mary's time of death may have been incorrectly reported by the police surgeon. There's nothing to suggest Mary survived, let alone move to Ireland. All right, this brings us to Inspector Aberlane. Fred Aberlane did not die, let alone commit suicide immediately after the Ripper murders. The very next year, he was involved in the notorious Cleveland Street scandal investigation. He retired in 1892 and lived until 1929. In later years, he did some private detective work with the American Pinkerton Agency. Aberlane's views on the Ripper varied. At one time, he stated that he believed George Chapman to be the killer, and at another time, he admitted that Scotland Yard had no clue whatsoever to his true identity. And the Freemasons. The Freemasons did and still do exist as a secretive cult-like establishment. Many prominent historian, historical figures have been Freemasons, including George Washington. Masonry achieved its height of popularity in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, but by the 1820s, many in America and England blamed them for conspiratorial cover-ups and other secretive dealings. Although some such claims have a basis in reality, the anti-Mason movement reached a near feverish pitch in the 1820s and 1830s, and the Masons were never the same afterwards. They remained in existence, but they no longer had the same political power they once enjoyed and devolved into little more than a gentleman's club. There is no evidence to link Freemasons to the Ripper's slains. The word Jews, found chalked in the, wa the wall on Goulston Street, almost certainly does not refer to the three traitors of Freemasonry. This part of their ritual beliefs were strong in the early 19th century, but by late Victoria times, few, if any, Freemasons knew about the Jubella, Jubello, and Jubellum. The Ripper murders also do not conform to any standardized rites chanted by Masons, although some of their rituals are admittedly violent in their symbolism. All links between the Ripper and the Freemasons trace back to Stephen Knight's final solution. And let's talk about the Ripper letters. Although hundreds of letters were indeed sent to the press and police claiming to be from Jack the Ripper, historians today believe that few, if any, actually came from the killer. And I know I've mentioned these a little while ago, but one in particular may have been um, real. It's called the From Hell Letter, which enclosed a piece of human kidney. In the film, Aberlein is given this letter and kidney before the double murders of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes. But it is Eddowes' kidney that the killer is allegedly sending through the post. So unless liver-kidney extraction was a particularly enjoyed pastime of poor Kate's, the timing was a bit off in the film. And the Jews' message. Um, and Jews was spelled J-U-W-E-S at the time. The Goulston Street Graffito did indeed exist, and it was indeed ordered to be washed away by Sir Charles Warren. The film makes it appear as though Warren was motivated to do this by means of covering up a Freemasonic conspiracy, but in reality his reasoning was quite sound. Anti-Semitic feeling was already rampant in the area, and any indication that the Ripper may be linked with a Jew could very well have caused a riot. Either way, there is no way to be sure that the Ripper actually wrote this message, and may have been scribbled days, if not weeks, before. Researchers today still can find no consensus on whether or not it was the Ripper's writing. So that leads us to our conclusion. In the end, From Hell straddles the fine line between fact and fiction, 
as so often found in Hollywood's historical epics. While the Hughes brothers are to be commended in capturing much of the authenticity of the times, location, and the case, the film should not be viewed as an authentic representation of the Ripper crimes as a whole. Those interested in the real facts of the case are urged to pick up Snugden's Complete History of Jack the Ripper or Rumbelow's The Complete Jack the Ripper. Either book serves as a good introduction to the case. And on a side note, I first saw this film in the theater and have since reviewed it twice, once about two years ago and once last weekend. The film is still engrossing and well done, albeit the film is entirely speculative in nature. Since we do not know who Jack was, and is likely we never will, the mystery will continue to intrigue us for many years to come. Tonight's Song of the Night is one of my favorites, and I'm pleased to play Rock and Roll Queen by the Subways. Enjoy. You are the sun, you are the only one, my heart is blue, my heart is blue for you. for listening dear friends i hope you like the episode and i'll start putting together another one soon um i'm going to talk about the mothman from west virginia so if you have been listening to my supernatural podcast you'll know that i talked about the cornstalk curse a couple weeks ago and just alluded to the mothman so i'm going to watch the movie the mothman prophecies and talk about who and what the legend of the mothman is all about and take care i'll talk to you soon you can email me, of course, at darkgatehorror at gmail.com. 
and visit my website at darkgatehorror.blogspot.com. Bye, guys.